0: Thank you, brother. I can't think of a more appropriate song for tonight's lesson than the one you just sang. So thank you so much for that. God is good. Can you say amen? It's good to see each and every one of you. I want to welcome you tonight to our Wednesday night Bible study uh, here at Mount Zion. And I want you to know that I'm glad you're here. I know I tell you this, uh, I try to tell you this every week, but I want you to remember it. I know there's a lot of other places you could be this evening besides being here in God's place with God's people to study God's precious, powerful word. I know you can do a lot of other things, but I'm glad you're here. And I'm thankful that you've made the decision to be a part of what God is going to do right here tonight. And I can tell you this, you're in the right place. And I'll tell you how I know you're in the right place. Because what we do around here on Wednesday evenings is we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, straight through a book of the Bible. Now, the Bible is God's word. Can you say me And in God's Word, we find truth that sets us free. Sets us free to be what God has created us to be, what Christ has saved us to be. And so I know that you are in the right place. And what I'm praying for, what my purpose is, is to dive deep into the truth of the Word of God so that all of our lives can be changed, mine included. I'll put mine at the top of the list. I I want to be changed by what I find in God's precious, powerful truth, and that's what we have with our Bibles. And so I'm so thankful that you've made the decision to be here this evening. Now, I'm excited to begin a brand new book tonight. And uh, I want you to take your copy of the Word of God and turn to the New Testament book of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews is one of my absolute favorite books in all the Word of God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I had a little boy come to me uh, years ago when I was at a different church. And and he walked up to me, fine young man, he's probably, I don't know at that time, 8, 10 years old, something like that. And he looked up at me as he's leaving the church and he said, "Brother, I want to ask you something. How many favorite verses do you got? Because every week you give us a new favorite verse. And he's right, and I did. Um, and you're probably feeling the same way because I know every time we start a new book in the Word of God, I tell you it's one of my favorites. But I want you to remember, all of them's good, can you say me? All of them's truth. All of them are powerful. All of them have life-changing truth in it. Listen to me now, that if we take and apply it to our life by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be changed by it. And I'm so very thankful um, for the truth of the Word of God. So all of it's good. It's kind of like popsicles. I love popsicles. I mean a whole lot. And, and I've actually got a hold of some um, that are they? They call them sugar-free, but I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. Whatever they're putting in them things tastes a whole lot like sugar, because I can't tell they're sugar-free. But that's what they say, so I'm trusting them. Uh, I'm diving in on them, and I, and I eat about two boxes a week. Brandy brings me about two boxes a week home. I usually average two to three a night, and I like all them popsicles. I like the red popsicles. I like the the green popsicles. I like the banana popsicles. Praise the Lord! I ain't never tried them, but I got a hold of them in this last batch, and man, they are fantastic. I like the orange popsicle. I like all the popsicles. But let me tell you my favorite popsicle. It's the grape popsicle. Amen? Now, what I try to do is um, hide all the grape popsicles before my kids get to it. Because they'll eat up everything. I mean, they eat you out of house and home. And if they find the grape popsicles, they're not going to save them for Dad. They're just going to get them. So what I usually do is take the grape popsicles out of the bag, and I put it in. we got an old bag of uh, English peas up in the uh Nobody eats the English peas. Nobody looks for the English peas. So what I'll do is take the great popsicles and put them in the English pea bag because I know them young'uns are not going to be looking for no English peas. So when I get ready for one, then I just go to the English pea bag and pull out the great popsicle. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Don't y'all tell them, though. That's that's our secret. So I love the great. Now, all the popsicles are good, but the great one, that's special to me. And that's kind of like the book of Hebrews. Man, this book is special to me. And I'm hoping and praying that as we study it together and we get into this truth, it'll be special to you as well. Maybe it already is. I hope it is. But, um, man, this is, this is good stuff, I'm telling you. I love the book of Hebrews. Let me uh, give you something that from one of my favorite preachers, Bible commentators, Bible scholars by the name of J. Vernon McGee. Now, if you don't know Dr. J. Vernon McGee, then I'll encourage you, get to know him. Um, he has a still today, there's a daily radio prog- program called Through the Bible with J. Vernon McGee, and he actually died in the late 70s, but man, if there's ever been a prophet, that brother was one, and he's been speaking truth over the radio waves for many years, and he's still doing so. So if you don't know him, get to know him. You can listen to that daily. He's got all kind of books, all kind of commentaries, and I would recommend all of them. But listen what he said concerning the book of Hebrews. He said, the epistle to the Hebrews is of such importance that I rank it beside the epistle to the Romans, which is excelled by no other book." Well, you remember, you see how big of a statement that is if you remember our study of the book of Romans. Many of you remember that, where we went through the book of Romans, and we said then that the book of Romans is so important it's actually the declaration of the Christian faith. What does the book of Romans declare then? Well, it declares a lot of things. First of all, it declares who we are, amen? Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the book of Romans declares unto sinful mankind who we are. But it also declares who Jesus is. That he is righteous and good and perfect and holy. And he is the propitiation, the suitable sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. That's why the Roman, book of Romans says in Romans 5:8, but God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, amen? And we just celebrated the fact, we just sang about the fact that even though he died, he didn't stay dead. He is now our living hope. He conquered death, hell, and the grave so that we all could also conquer death, hell, and the grave if we put faith in Christ. And so I want you to understand the book of Romans declares who we are, declares who God is, and then it declares unto us how much we need him. Amen? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then it tells us how we can know him. It says, for all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, Romans 10.13. So we need to understand, we need to know, if, if he puts it, this great man of God puts it right up there with the book of Romans, then folks, this is a powerful, special book. And uh, I believe when we get finished with it, it'll be special to you as well, if it's not already special to you. Now, um, let me give you something that uh, that uh, Pastor G. Campbell Morgan said. Now, if you don't know G. Campbell Morgan, uh, again, I encourage you to get to know it. Any book you can find that... G. Campbell Morgan wrote, get it, any any one of them. All of them's good. I love G. Campbell Morgan. Let me tell you what he said concerning the book of Romans and the importance of teaching the book of Romans. Listen to what he says in this. First of all, he tells us that the theme of the epistle to the Romans is the supreme glory of Christ, the Son of God and the Son of the Man. It is the only book in which our Lord is presented in His high priestly office. So really what the the book of uh, Hebrews does for us, it gives us the full picture of Jesus, not just who he was, not just what he did, but also who he is now and what that means for each and every one of us. And we don't find that everywhere. We certainly find it in the book of Of Hebrews, listen what else he said. I love this part. This is really good. The letter to to the Hebrews has a a special value today because there is abroad a very widespread conception of Christ which is lower than that of the New Testament. Now, pay attention to what he just said there. And I want you to think as we as we as I read this to you, I want you to think about a lot of the preaching that you hear today. All right, he says that there is a widespread conception of Christ that is lower than the New Testament writers. Now, what's he talking about? The understanding of Christ that is being preached today is much lower than that of New Testament writers. I remember when I was over at uh, some of my teachers at um, the Bible Institute, they would always say, if you're going to preach effectively, you have to have a high Christology. Amen? I like that. Now, what is Christology? Well, that's just the knowledge of who Christ is. It's an understanding of the deity of Christ, that he is the Son of God, but also The son of man. If he's not the son of man, then he can't do for men what men can't do for themselves. So both are important, but you must keep Christ in the proper category. And let me say to you something. He's in a category all by himself. And I want to go as far as to say this. Anybody who does not have a high view of Christ, a high Christology, then I want you to know you don't need to be speaking about Christ. Certainly don't need to be preaching from a pulpit. Listen, if you don't have a high view of Jesus, then who are you preaching about? And furthermore, why are you preaching? There's no power in it. And every preacher needs to ask himself those questions. No doubt about it. But I love how he puts the rest of this. Watch this right here. To illustrate what I mean by this, a recent writer has said, One of the best things we can say about human nature is this, that whenever a situation occurs which can only be solved by an individual laying down his life for his friends, some heroic person is certain to come forth sooner or later. Listen. And offer himself as the victim, a Curtius to leap in the gulf, a Socrates to drink the hemlock, a Christ to to get himself crucified on Calvary. So really what this writer does is put Jesus in the same camp as Crucius and Socrates. Now watch what else. G. Campbell Morgan goes on to say, I'm not proposing to discuss that at any length. He said, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that nonsense. But he does tell you what's wrong with it. He says, but at once I say that to place Christ in, this, in that connection is to me little short of blasphemy. And he's right. Let me go as far as to say this right here. Be careful about categorizing Jesus with everybody else. Never, ever refer to Jesus as the man upstairs. I know you've heard that. If you're saying that, quit saying it. He's not in the category of any man. And he's not upstairs. He's right now seated at the right hand of the Father holding the place of preeminence. If you remember when Isaiah got a view of the throne room of God he said that he saw God high and then he get, goes a step further. He said he was lifted up. He was high in relationship to all other high things. Amen. But he even went above that. He was lifted up above the high things. He's in a class all by himself. And to put him on the same level as Socrates or Crucius, listen, I agree with Dr. Morgan. He is... Create. He is speaking blasphemous words, no doubt about it. Now, l- let's go on. Let's what else he tells us. He says, but when we speak of a Christ, our reference to him is not only out of harmony with the New Testament presentation, but implicitly a contradiction of what it de- declares concerning the uniqueness of his person. So what he's saying is, Jesus is so unique, you can't put him on anybody else's level. Let me me give you another one that I hear sometimes. i tell you what we need. We need Jesus in the White House. Jesus needs to run America. Let me give you, um, I understand what people are saying when they say that to some degree. But let let me say something to you folks. How do you know Jesus ain't on the ticket? Are you hearing me? And he never will be. To say that Jesus would lower himself to become president of a country that will one day pass away is to put Jesus in a class he don't need to be in. To say Jesus would ever be in the White House or won't the White House is to lessen who he is. He's already on the throne. Can you say in? He's already in control. He guides and directs the heart of kings already. And let me tell you something. Everything that's happening is happening according to plan. The power the enemy has is power that has been allowed for a season. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you. I don't understand all the ins and outs of that. I don't. But why, how could I? Why would I ever understand the ins and outs of that? I don't have omniscience. I don't know all things. I don't have omnipresence. I'm not everywhere at all times. And I certainly don't have omnipotence, the power to do what I want to do when I want to do it. He does. His ways are higher than my ways, and his ways are higher than your ways, and you're never going to figure it all out. Amen? So, to lessen Christ, to lower Christ onto the level of any man, is blasphemous. Be very careful about that. That's not a good thing. So when we come to the book of Hebrews, it's important that we study this because listen, the book of Hebrews tells us exactly who Jesus is and how he is superior to every other person. How he holds the chief place as our chief priest at the right hand of God. A man by the name of Edward Schuyler In his commentary on the book of Hebrews, he said to read the book of Hebrews is to breathe the atmosphere of heaven itself. To study it is to partake in strong spiritual meat. I like that. How do you know the apostle Paul said, if you remember to the book of Corinthians, I wanted to give you strong meat, but but you wasn't ready. So what I had to give you was milk. Because they were babes in Christ. Now, if, if you get a hold of the truth that we find in the book of Hebrews, well, it, you, you're going to grow by that. It's like eating a T-bone steak. And T-bone steak that's packed full of protein helps you grow strong. <laughs> Amen? Physically speaking, like, like the... Book of Hebrews, the word of God helps us grow spiritually speaking. To abide in it, in its teaching, is to be led from immaturity to maturity in the knowledge of Christian truth and Christ himself. If Hebrews, or excuse me, if Romans is the declaration of our faith, Hebrews is the declaration of our Savior. It really is. It declares unto us who he is, and that's a powerful thing. See, if we can just get a right view of Jesus, it fixes everything else. If we can get a right view of Jesus, it'll change how we live tomorrow. If we get a right view of Jesus, it'll change how we worship in church. If we can get a right view of Jesus, it'll change how we preach the sermon, how we teach the class, how we pray the prayer. If we can get a right view of Jesus, it will change how uh, uh, the, the father I am. It'll change the husband I am. It'll certainly change the witness I am. If we can only gain a right view of Jesus, and the only way we get a right view of Jesus, a high Christology, is by sharing the truth of God's word. Reading the truth of God's word. Studying the truth of God's word. So do you see the importance of the book of Hebrews? So let's answer some questions concerning the book. First of all, who wrote it? Now, this is one of the most debated topics in all of the Bible. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? I've heard some men who... Are a whole lot smarter than me who say Paul wrote it. I've heard some men who are a whole lot smarter than me say Paul didn't write it. I've heard a lot of people say other people wrote it. Now, I'm fixing to clear up all of that. Let me tell you, I know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews. Exactly, no question. I know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And who wrote the book of Hebrews is none other than God, the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy chapter number three. We talked about this a whole lot for the last month. Second Timothy chapter three. What's it says? Say all Scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. Now we talked about what that means. That all Scripture is inspired by God or God breathed. Now it is certainly correct to say that the book of Hebrews, just like the book of John, has a dual authorship. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by dual authorship? Two authors, right? You certainly have a heavenly author, God the Holy Spirit, who inspires his men to write down his words. And I don't, I don't believe that... Um, when God, the Holy Spirit, inspired his men to write down the words of the Bible, I don't believe they were in like a trance and they left out all their personality and left out all their experiences. I don't think that at all. I think he wrote through them who they were. You remember me telling you the best you you can be is you full of Jesus? What we have is here the man of God, full of the Spirit of God, Writing down the word of God. Now that don't negate the man. That makes the man better. That don't take away from the man. Certainly not. It adds to the man. And it helps the man to be exactly what God wants him to be. And write down what God wants him to write down. So the the writer is not void of personality or experience. No. That couldn't be further from the truth. He writes who he is, full of Jesus. Now, why do I say the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews? We'll read the rest of the writings of the Apostle Paul and then read Hebrews. And you're going to see they line up perfectly the way he argues his point. I'm going to tell you something. That brother of the Apostle Paul, he was a fantastic lawyer. I mean, he he, he put Perry Mason to shame. Matlock to shame. That was my favorite. He knew how to argue his point better than anybody I know. Go and read what he wrote. It's amazing. We studied in the book of Ephesians. We studied in the book of 1 Corinthians. How he argued his point with clarity, with preciseness. And listen, brought you right where you need to be so you could see what you need to see and hear what you need to hear. And he does the same thing in Hebrews. He had a vast knowledge of Old Testament scripture. You're going to see that when we read through this. Now, if anybody had a vast knowledge of the Old Testament scripture, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he was a Pharisee. If there would have been anyone qualified to write to the Hebrews, or the Jews who had been trusted in Jesus, they were, they were actually Reformed Jews, is what they were. Actually, they were real Jews. Just like I'm a real Jew. And just like you're a real Jew. You didn't know you was Jewish, did you? You may not can trace your lineage back to the Jewish people, physically speaking. But the real people of Abraham are the people of faith. That's why Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced in it. So I am a child of God. Not Physically. Spiritually, but that's what matters, that's what counts. Why? Because the physical is going back to the dust from whence it came, but the spiritual, the soul, will live for an eternity somewhere, so will yours. Are you hearing me? We'll look at what all that means as we go further into this. He lays that out for us very plainly. So I think if you look at the other writings of Paul and then you compare it with the book of Hebrews, you're going to see that I believe Paul wrote it. I think that Paul is the human author of the book of Hebrews. Now there's several different reasons I want you to I want you to think about and why as to why I believe that not only if you uh, compare it with his other writings, but also We know from Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 34, brother, if you will please put this on the screen for me, Hebrews 10, 34, the the, the writer tells us here that he was in bonds or he was um, in prison. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds. Do you see it? There's other places in the book of Hebrews that we'll study where we'll see uh, that the, the writer plainly says he was in Italy. And we know that Paul wrote most of his epistles From Rome, okay? So Paul being in bonds, I believe that's who the Bible is referring to there. And took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and more endearing sacrifice. Not only had the writer been in bonds or been imprisoned for his faith, but the, the writer of the book of Hebrews also had a companion by the name of Timothy. You'll find that Hebrews thirteen twenty three. Watch what the Bible says right there. Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse number twenty three. Know you not? Know you that our Timothy, our brother Timothy, is set at liberty. With whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. So we know that he had a close personal relationship with Timothy. They were traveling companions. Well, we know that is certainly true of Paul. So I think again, that's further evidence that Paul wrote it. Not only do we find evidence in the book of Hebrews, but we also find evidence in the book of 2 Peter. You'll remember this from our study of the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Watch what um, the Bible says right here, what Peter says concerning how Paul wrote the letter. and account that the long sufferings, Of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also according to the wisdom given unto him hath written unto you. Now who's Peter talking to? He's talking to Hebrews who had trusted in Jesus as their Savior. He's talking to Jews who have become the true children of Abraham. Look at verse 16. And also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood which they are that unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. So what he's saying is Paul wrote this letter to you the Hebrews um, a lot of what I've written to you is really what he's talking about. So I think he's referring to the very book we're studying. I think Peter was in 2 Peter chapter number 3. So I believe we know God the Holy Spirit wrote the book of Hebrews through his inspiration. But the dual authorship is God the Holy Spirit and the human author would certainly be the Apostle Paul, I think. Now, is that a heel any of us need to die on? No, of course not. It's truth of the word of God. Take it as that and move on. Paul did not sign his name to it. That's been the, the, uh, the greatest um, argument that people who are against the authorship of Paul use because he signs his name to everybody else. But I want you to think about this. Why would he not sign his name? Remember his past now. Remember who he used to be. He was Saul, the persecutor of the church, who was widely respected in Jewish communities. Why? Because he he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest teacher in Jerusalem at the time. Paul was a very respected Jewish student of scripture, taught by the best teachers, raised and went to the best schools. If anybody had a PhD in the Jewish religion, it was the apostle Paul. And everybody in the Jewish community loved this brother. And then everything changed. Everything changed on the road to Damascus when he trusted in the risen Savior, who he experienced. And then he became a preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, an apostle to the Gentiles. Isn't that what he called himself? Over and over and over again there was still some hostility between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. It's amazing how sometimes we can only love people in our group. Don't we all fall victim to that? It's amazing how we can get clicky. And nobody... Can be accepted in our group, except our group. I mean, we, will, we may want to look at, at, the, at the, the, the people I'm talking about tonight, the Jews and the Gentiles, but we do the exact same thing. I'm telling you. And that should not be the case. Let me tell you something we all need grace. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. I'm not on any higher standing than you are. I actually heard of a pastor just this last week. Somebody told me about it. They had went to a church, and the pastor, was nobody was allowed to speak to him prior to the service or after the service because they felt as though That would hinder him from doing God's work. What is God's work? Well it's loving God. And then what? It's loving people. One is not exclusive from the other. Matter of fact you can't even say you love God. If you don't love people, if you don't show compassion to people. But what has happened, we've put certain people up on a pedestal and they think they're so high and mighty and spiritual that nobody else can get in their circle, can bother their work. And that's what scares me. That's their work. That ain't God's work. Are you hearing me? So we have got to be very careful about that stuff. God condemns it. Because he hates it. And what God hates, we ought to hate too. So you need to remember, we're all, all in the same boat there's a country song out right now Now, I don't agree with all the words of that song but I'll tell you I do agree with we all in the same boat fishing in the same hole and we are we are each and every one of us man we need Jesus and this world needs Jesus amen alright so again I think Paul wrote it if you don't think that that's alright now When was it written? And this is important. When was the book of Hebrews written? A lot of people think it was written in the 90s, A.D. 90 and above. Most people think A.D. 93 to A.D. 96. But I don't believe that. Let me tell you why I don't believe that. Because as we read through the book of Hebrews, you're going to see that temple sacrifice was still being made when this brother wrote this scripture. Now, now, Hebrews 10 lays that out plainly. He talks about the blood of bulls and goats that were still being made day by day. Those sacrifices in the temple still being made under the old covenant. Well, if that was true, then it could not have been written in A.D. 90 because if you remember in history... In A.D. 70, Titus the Roman came into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Not only did he destroy the temple, he destroyed the city, plowed up the ground, sold the ground with salt so it wouldn't grow crops, and the people actually committed cannibalism to survive. Let me tell you why. Well, Jesus said it was going to happen. You know where he said it? Matthew 24. He said that not one stone of that temple would remain upon another, and it didn't. It was destroyed. You want me to tell you why it was destroyed because they missed the whole point of his coming. They were still looking to the temple instead of looking to the lamb. They missed it. They were so wound up and bound up in the religious tradition that they missed the Savior and rejected the Son of God and God the Son. Now let me ask you something, parent. If you had given your child To be punished for the wrong of others. I'm not talking about good stuff. I'm talking about bad stuff. Horrible stuff. Lying, cheating, abuse, and neglect. And every other murder, rape, every other horrible sin you can think of. If you had given your children to be punished for the sake of those who had committed those sins, even though your child had not committed any wrong, but you loved those people so much, you were willing to give them on behalf of others for payment for their wrong. And then they chose to reject the great gift you had given. Don't you think that would require some justice? Well, I think that's what happened in A.D. 70. I think God judged the nation of Israel. And I think he's done it since. And guess what? He's going to do it again, according to the book of Revelation. It is a dangerous thing to reject the Son of God. It really is. So that happened in A.D. 70. And if the temple sacrifices were still being made when the writer wrote this book, then this book has to be pre-A.D. 70. That's another reason I think Paul wrote it. Because at the time when Titus came into Jerusalem, Paul was already dead. He'd already been beheaded because he just kept preaching Jesus. So that's when it was written. Now, to whom is it written? Well, the, the title of the book says it all to the Hebrews, to the Jews who had trusted in Jesus. I, I talked to someone, I can't remember who it was, um, after last Wednesday night or the one before that, I can't remember. And, and you'd asked me if there were several Jews who trusted in Christ. Yes, a whole lot. Matter of fact, the first church was primarily made up of Jewish believers uh, when the day of Pentecost had come, when the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came as a rushing mighty wind and the Apostle Peter stood up and preached on that day, 3,000 people got saved. Those 3,000 people that got saved were Jewish believers. Later on you'll see 2,000 more that got saved in Jerusalem through the preaching of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those two were Jewish believers. It wasn't until later on that God then Sent the gospel message to the Gentiles but it started in Jerusalem and many Jews believed after the resurrection which is again further proof of the resurrection were there some before? Yes Joseph of Arimathea was a mem- member of the Sanhedrin, the highest court of the Jewish people, he, we know he was a, a follower of Christ, he was the one who gave his tomb for Jesus to be buried in, I, I think I, I don't have any evidence of this but I think Nicodemus was a believer and I don't know that he followed Jesus pre-crucifixion and resurrection, but I think he was certainly would have been certainly a follower after the crucifixion and resurrection. Again, I don't have evidence of that, but I think it's true. So there were certain ones. Simon the leper. You remember Simon the leper. That was the house that Mary, um, um, the, the sister of Lazarus, where she anointed the feet of Jesus. Remember we talked about the alabaster box two or three weeks ago? Well, that happened in the house of Simon the leper. Simon the leper was actually a Pharisee who had got leprosy, and Jesus healed him. Well, you know, he was a follower of Christ. So there were were many who did, but I don't know how many, several after. So it was written to the Hebrews who had trusted in Jesus as Messiah, as Savior. Now, why was it written? Well, we've already talked about a lot of that. Let me give you a final quote from G. Campbell Morgan that I really like. Romans revealed the necessity of the Christian faith, but Hebrews reveals the superiority of the Christian faith. I love that. I love that. Why is the Christian faith superior? And I make no argument. Listen. I am not trying to pull any punches. I'm not trying to hide anything I believe. I believe the Christian faith is superior to all other faiths. I don't apologize for that. No, I'm not arrogant. I'm not trying to be arrogant about that either. Amen? I'm not trying to be mean about it. I'm just trying to tell the truth. But I am dogmatic in that, in that belief. It is superior to other faiths. There are not many ways to God. I know you've heard that. If you ever went to the church of Oprah Winfrey, you heard it. I mean, she said stuff. She loved that stuff. Give everybody the warm and fuzzies and everybody big stand up clap. Talk about their new book. I ain't against Oprah. I'm just saying. She's a great talk show host, but a terrible theologian. Terrible. Terrible. There's not many ways to God. Never has been. There are not many gods. There's only one God. And the one God has been revealed to us in the person of his son. Are you hearing me? Why am I so dogmatic that there's only one true faith and only one true Savior? Listen to what the Savior said. I am the way The way, not a way. Now, he could have said a way. And if he had of, that would have opened up all kind of other opportunities for, to get to God. To know God. To get to the kingdom of heaven. Because remember, that's what he came preaching about. The kingdom of heaven. And knowing the Father. And what all this means. And he said, I am the way Into the kingdom. I am the way to the Father. Not a way. There's no other way. I am the truth. How many of you know truth is not in a plan but in a man? (laughs) It's in a man. The God man. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the essence of truth. He is the word made flesh. The Logos. The Greek word logos that is used, or excuse me, the um, logos is the original uh, writing. Logos is the Greek word for word. Jesus is the word, the logos made flesh. That word logos in the Greek means the word that got everything started. Think about that just a minute. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there wasn't anything made that was made unless it was made by Him. Jesus is the Logos. He is the Word. He is the truth. Remember how I told you that we live in a universe governed by laws? And if it has laws, there has to be a lawgiver. Laws that are true. They're not true because science proved them. Again, I don't have more faith in the Word of God because we see science continually proving the Word of God. It gives me a little more faith in science. Are you hearing me? However, I think it's right for us to point out to an unbeliever that there are several, several truths in the word of God, that science has continually backed up. It just hadn't caught up yet fully. Maybe it will. I don't know. But through the advancement of technology, it has caught up a lot. What I'm saying is, Jesus got all this started with absolute, total truth, for he is the essence of truth. He is the way. He is the truth. And the Bible says What? The life. Who said that? John 14, 6. Why am I dogmatic in my belief? Because he's pretty dogmatic. That's what he said. The Christian faith is superior because of the superior nature of Jesus, the Christ. We just sang about it a little bit ago, we just celebrated it Sunday. The main reason, the big reason that I know the Christian faith is superior is because I can take you right now to the tomb of Muhammad. Muslims all over the world make pilgrimages to his tomb on a yearly basis. I can take you to the shrines of the Buddhas. They're theirs where they're buried in one form or another. However, I cannot take you to the place where the body of Jesus lies. Why? The tomb is empty. And for the last three or four weeks, we've been talking about all the evidence that supports that. If he can conquer the grave, he must be God. He claimed it. He proved it. I believe it. The Christian faith is superior because of the superior nature of Jesus. That's what we read about. That's what we study about in the book of Hebrews. Any comments or questions?